Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is Table Topics, episode number 74, Shadows of the Demon Lord, Recap and Review. So this will be our final episode in what I'm calling Shadows Week, uh, kind of like Shark Week, but not. Uh, we've had now five episodes that have went around in one way or the other, the new game Shadows of the Demon Lord. We started off with an interview with the creator of the game system, Robert Schwab. We then had three episodes of the actual play under our The Trials headings, where we got to play test this game. And here is our recap and review, where we bring all the players back together. We talk about what we liked and what we didn't like, uh, and kind of give it a recap and review. Uh, spoiler, we all really liked it, and uh, we're big fans. So hopefully you guys are too, and you will take a moment to uh, check out the, the game system as it's being kickstarted, which should be going on now, and take a look and see if this is something you would want to back as well. So anyway, here is Table Topics, episode number 74, Shadows of the Demon Lord, Recap and Review. So hello and welcome to Table Topics. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? Oh, I'm just lovely tonight, Michael, and how are you today? I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you for asking. So tonight we are going to do our recap of our trial of Shadows of the Demon Lord. So for that actual play test, we had four players, myself, Caleb G, and then Scott 1 and Scott 2. Uh, so Scott 1, would you say hello to everybody? Howdy, everybody out in Radio Land. And Scott number 2, would you say hello to everybody? Hello, everyone out in Radio Land. This is Scott number 2. <laughs> so we probably need to come up with a different way to differentiate you. Do either of you guys have a middle name or a nickname that we could maybe, maybe yeah, my, use? Yeah, my, my middle name is Caleb G. So, <laughs> oh, that's how I know you. Yeah, so so uh, I, I get a lot of your mail, kind of a funny story. But but if if you could start calling yourself a Caleb G, and I could be another Caleb G, that would be great. Uh, but seriously, if either of you have a nickname or a middle name that would work, that would probably be great. Uh, the ones I know from my Facebook group called My Name Is Scott Brown Two uh, is is Scotty B, Scotty Too Hotty, Downtown Scotty Brown. Any of these are acceptable. Okay. Uh, bearded Scott, it is. <laughs> I'm not too Or no, you can be you, Scott huh? Classic because you've been around long. You're Scott Classic. But we have New Scott. There we new go. New Scott and Scott Classic. There we go. Done. All right. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us here tonight for this table topic recap of the trial of Shadows of the Demon Lord. Basically, we had a chance to get the game, uh, get to go through it pretty early. I think initially, at least... At, the conversation we've had, we all were pretty positive about the game, but I want to go through some of the specifics, what we liked. We'll get around to some of the stuff that we didn't like um, in any sort of any closing thoughts. So, Caleb, I'll start with you. Sort of big picture, um, you know, what were your overall impressions of Shadow of the Demon Lord? Oh, man, I loved it. Hands down, top to bottom. I was really impressed with just the simplicity of the mechanics uh, but the fact that it still felt like a really deep, involved game. It's very surprising me for me to say this, but uh, I did not care about my general uselessness as a first-level character. Uh, I was very invested with that character, even though I couldn't do a lot with him. Uh, I still had a blast playing that first-level 
nobody. Although I, I'm still not going to go back and enjoy that zero level uh, race only character. You could you can do that by yourself. And I really love the world. The world that uh, Rob built for us was just fantastic. I mean, it was so familiar with so many different uh, bits and pieces of different genres, but it just put it together in a very unique, very entertaining way, especially in the second conversation we had with Rob about the rest of the world over and above what Nat told us during our play test. I'm sold. I'm 100% sold. Awesome. All right. So uh, Scott Classic, same question to you, sort of overall thoughts uh, about the game. Uh, Well, it, it felt a lot like classic D&D, which I thought was great, but, but by far my favorite part of it was, was the... It comes across right in the title. The Shadow of the Demon Lord. We, 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 I really felt like I was living in the shadow uh, un, under the, this oppressive, terrifying regime of, of nightmarish realities that penetrate into our casual sandwich discussions. And um, I really enjoyed that. I, I find that as, as my tastes... Um, as my tastes evolve in terms of gaming, I'm, I'm really enjoying the horror aspect more, and this seemed like a really juicy way to bite into it without a lot of mechanical claptrap laid on top. Okay, thank you, sir. And then uh, New Scott, same question to you. And again, th- for those of you who don't know, uh, New Scott filled in because Matthew was not able to be there for our Shadows of the Demon Lord trial. As jerk Scott face. Of, jerk face. Uh, Matthew, not Scott. Or Scott New Scott, uh, New Scott is one of our patrons, so he supports the show, and so he was sort of top of the list to get the invite, and he was able to do it. So first of all, thank you for that. I hope you had a good time. And then back to the original question. So what did you think of the game, Scott? Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. And uh, as far as New Scott goes, both in name and you know, kind of uh, exposure to the genre, I'm kind of new to this whole thing and. Getting to compare this game to more of the, you know, like the D and D five that we typically play, it was interesting. Like I, I liked a lot of the things. Uh, I thought it made it really easy for people to pick up and and go with, you know, we had relatively uh, little, you know, uh, pre conversations about the about the game before we started. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it ran great. We were able to get into it and, and have fun, you know, within minutes of, of just learning about our characters. I actually want to jump in here for a second. Let's take a second here to focus on New Scott as the new player at the table here. Um, this is one of the things that I was most interested in coming to this table topic episode. By this point, folks, you've all listened to us play. You've listened to uh, us talk with Rob about the game, about the rules. So I'm, I, I don't want to go over a lot of crazy rule points, but I'm really interested to know what Scott thought about jumping into a different system from 5th edition, kind of switching gears from learning 5th edition to now learning something new. I, I'm really interested in that. So... Highlight on New Scott right now. Uh, I thought it was really easy. I mean, I kind of had the advantage of going through D&D 5 and learning that as my first role-playing game. So I, I think that it's even easier to go from that to this, to this particular rule set. But if you were just brand new to the whole genre, this would, be a, this would be a really easy game set to get into. Like, the roles are all, uh, all really simplified. You know, the... The professions and um, the way they do that whole part of it really made it easy to to role play and deal with the mechanics of just you know your 
your character knowledge. So yeah, I mean, I I thought it was great. I think it'd be a a great way to get new people in. And then it seemed like the way that it builds, as far as character development, it seems like the way you could build your character would really feed into people who are more you know more sophisticated with their systems, who really want to customize their character and things like that. Very cool. Thank you for that. For me, again, I really liked it. Don't I don't don't want anything that, that I say comes across as a, that I, I did not like the system, but part of it feels like that it's a lot of cobbled together house rules that people have made, but then it's done by an actual game designer who knows how to make that work, because everything seemed like it was just one step simpler than a different game that I saw that in. Like that's like this game, but it's a one step similar. And it's like this game, it's one step similar. So I think it worked really, really well together. But I also want to recognize that Nat was a great GM. And there's a huge part, like we probably could have played charades and had a ton of fun because of the skill that he brought to it. And I I don't want to detract from that. I thought Nat was a fantastic uh, GM. And I think that enhanced our fun at the table as well. Going back to what Scott Classic said, the theme of the game and the feel of the game, some of the the words that Nat used and some of the uh, imagery that he used just constantly reinforced that theme. Early on, Caleb used a spell to do like an augury or divination, and he fumbled the roll, and so mechanically he was supposed to get a point of insanity. And, you know, you very easily could have said, well, you got a point of insanity, but Nat went ahead and talked about how you got a glimpse into hell and there was a devil that you saw and that that is what caused you to get your insanity point and we learned later that there was a devil involved so obviously that made sense and it was sort of foreshadowing even having the sort of lethargic foppish elf early on especially the witch the the scene where we fought the witch all of that just reinforced this one step removed alternate reality very horror themed and i just think that all fits together so well and i think that's part of the reason why uh, scott classic liked it so much and and as did I. Yeah, I, I think it is safe to say that most fantasy genre role-playing games share all those classic elements and tropes. And that's part of the hobby. We expect that, we play with it, we do what we can with it, and a lot of times we enjoy seeing those classic elements uh, pop up in place to place. And in Shadow of the Demon Lord... It was all the same stuff. It was nothing new. It was nothing groundbreaking. It was a fantasy world, and there were evil demons. Every RP, every D&D game, every RPG I've ever played can be summed up in that same sentence for the most part. But the way that Rob has built this world, it felt, I don't want to say really fresh and new, but it was just a really great, unique twist on all these different genres, and it put them together really, really beautifully. So I, I feel like you guys have both done a great job of playing Deadpool's Advocate, but can't we find something wrong with this system? <laughs> uh, I guess, I mean, I have a... I was thinking this afternoon, uh, getting ready for this, like, one of the... Uh, trying to think of, like, things I didn't like. I don't know that I necessarily didn't like it, but the one kind of thing that I thought was strange was how that at least coming from D&D, was how all of the checks were 10, and then you either added or subtracted from that difficulty by coming up with banes or boons, and there was mechanics involved in how you got those and, and whatnot. 
I'm not sure if I like the idea of adding and subtracting it via like other things that you might have. Like, if you want something to be really difficult, then I have to either arbitrarily add some other difficulty to your task outside of just that single thing that you're trying to accomplish. I thought, I don't know if I don't necessarily like that as much. Like that there's no, um, that all doors are equally challenging to pick unless this one is a is an especially baneful door. <laughs> right. I'm not feeling really lockpicky today, so this is going to probably be tough. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, that uh, I, you know, I'd agree with you. And I see a lot of the systems we've previewed are, are coming up with some sort of response or or version of the advantage-disadvantage system of 5th edition. Um, and I'm sure that that was not the first of its kind, that it, it is predated by something else. But but I, I do see in my tiny glimpse of the industry a, a lot of people trying to get uh, simpler modifiers into this system. But I thought that the point of using simpler modifiers was that so that we didn't have to do math in our head because not all of us... Are, are Caleb G's who can multiply eight-digit numbers and just give you the second factorial right off the top of the cuff. Well, you're you're referring to yourself as Caleb G in that point, right? In third oh, person? The middle, middle name, name. yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I sure as fuck can't do that. Well, and go back to New Scott's point, you probably haven't played Savage Worlds yet. If you have, that that is one game that I am somewhat experienced with that does something similar that Pretty much everything that you need to do has a target number of four unless you are actively opposing, which is pretty much how this works, except the target number is 10. So I've had some familiarity with it, so it didn't seem as unusual to me as it it obviously did to you. I still kind of agree with you that there are these weird things where, you know, climbing across a tightrope between two buildings is just as difficult then picking a lock is just as difficult as bribing the guard is just as difficult as this thing or the other. But I think the trade-off, what they were going for is that it's simple and it's easy to use. So I, whether I like it or not, I'm, I'm honestly not sure I'd have to play it more, but I, I appreciate the, the, the simplicity that they've built in because most of the time you would rather just get past that to get to the part, to get to the drama. Either you succeeded, so now you're on to the cool thing, or you failed, that's the fun thing. And just getting to that point a little quicker, I'm okay with that. But I, I do agree with you that I can see that some people probably would have an issue with that. Uh, for me, the, the one thing, <laughs> this is very minor, is the initiative. And when I first played it at Winter Fantasy, I didn't really like it. I didn't get it. Playing through our playthrough, I was fine with it. I don't like the terminology. I don't like player fast turn, bad guy fast turn, player slow turn, bad guy slow turn. I just, I, I, I've even thought that as like, what would I call that? I just don't like those words. I would, I would prefer quick action, slow actions, or, um, you know, half, half action, full action, something just to make it a little bit more invocative. That to me feels like a first draft term. What was that classic, Scott? Less action and more action. <laughs> there you go. And satisfaction. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I kind of got the impression uh, from Nate that, you know, a lot of these terminologies are, uh, you know, they're being worked over on, on their side. But uh, I kind of liked the uh, the way that the initiative worked. Like, it was, uh, it seemed to blend itself more to some strategy where it was still quick. Like, there wasn't any dice rolling. You were just making the decision between fast and slow, and then everyone could kind of just play through the through the combat 
strategically however they decided. Uh, I thought it was an interesting way. I'm, I'm sure it's probably, you know, you guys have probably been exposed to it in, in other systems, but it was, a, it was a unique way to do it uh, as far as I saw it. It seemed to work. Yeah, I liked the initiative that way. It definitely felt foreign, but as we got into it, I saw its value in keeping everyone involved in the moment. Uh, I think it built a lot of tension at the table. We were kind of invested to see, is the bad guy going to act now? Is he going to act later? What are we going to do? There were certainly a couple great moments of strategy, uh, especially between um, you and I, Scott, when we were fighting in that uh, prison cell area. There, there were a couple times where we kind of swapped turns. You know, I was saying, oh, well, let me go and attack this guy. And you said, well, wait, hold on. Let me take a fast action first to set you up for your next action. It's a nice dynamic. Uh, it's a good way to reinforce everyone playing together at the table. And this is something that Rob brought up. I mean, he's been through like 50 or 60 versions of this game in, in his course of development. And he has addressed all of these issues, especially initiative and combat and all of that, many, many, many times, uh, I I think it really works for the system. I think it serves to highlight the difference of this system, any version of D&D, other similar role-playing games. Uh, it, it's definitely something I might not use in a different game, but I really like it in this context. And I really like the fact, as a little bit of a tangent here, when you're fighting the crazy big monsters... They're the ones that get multiple turns. So they're the ones that are acting on fast turns and slow turns and end of turn. They're doing all kinds of bonkers things. So I like taking that second level of it. We didn't get to see it in our playtest, but know that it's there in the game. And so we can do cooler things with this concept. I'll tell you my my absolute favorite thing about this initiative system, and that's when, when, um, when, when, when you ask us, Okay, anybody for fast turns? And there would just be a generous pause. And then, you know, one or two of us would go. If somebody really had an idea or if you guys had negotiated a strategy together, you'd go. And then everyone would kind of consider, and he'd just kind of, you know, uh, final answer, final answer, and then he'd move on. Slow turns, right? And and I love that because I, I've tried a number of initiative systems, at least at my home table, and they all suck. I mean, each is just worse than the last. You know, trying to do the bookkeeping or assign someone to bookkeeping for traditional initiative is right out. Popcorn initiative, we've been doing it for four months, and not one player can remember to actually pass to someone at the end of their turn, and it's always negotiation. You know, that that that, that we, we tried clockwise, and then people complain that they get stuck behind the fighter and they never get to go because their initiative's poor. Uh, so, so... I, I think there's no good system, but I, I like the idea of, of just throwing it out there and letting people who are invested and already have an idea go first and waiting for other people who need to look up rules or answer that question for themselves of when they're going to go and what they're going to do, act when they've decided. You Instead of presenting what do you do to one player at a time around the table, you present it to everyone simultaneously, and then and then people will voice up and act as they get the chance. And, you know, another good idea is that it lets players change up their combat style. You know, in in a classic initiative with classic fantasy, you expect the rogue to always go first. You expect the fighter to kind of maybe get first, maybe, uh, you know, back clean up, depending on what type of fighter he is, and the clerics and the wizards to be somewhere mixed up in the middle there. And that's pretty much always true. 
the fast guys are always going to go first, the slow guys are always going to plot along at the very end. With this mechanic, it lets it lets you change up your tactics. I mean, even uh, like Scott and I, we were both wizards. We were both casters. In a typical D and D setting, if we were uh, if we were spell casters of any sort, we'd probably have really low initiatives. Unless we rolled high, we'd probably be going last or next to last in the initiative order. So we'd be saving up those fireballs and saying, oh, well, I was going to fireball all the kobolds, but shit, the fighter and the ranger killed them all. Uh, magic missile, nah, I'm bored, kind of thing. But with this example, if I had a great idea, I could say, oh, wait, wait, let me jump in. I want to do this because it's cool. And if on the next turn I said, ah, I'm going to hold back and, and take a slower turn and be careful, I could do that. I wasn't locked in to my initiative role for the entire combat, let alone just as my character. Well, and the initiative role, kind of, like when you do it in this fast, slow rounds this way, it, I mean, it, it kind of just makes a natural sense, too, because, you know, we're casters, we're ranged. So if we are just going into like a standard combat, you know, we don't have to move. We're already, you know, we're in our range to fight. So, you know, you can do fast move, you can do a fast round. You give up your move, but I can fire from here anyway. So I, you know, we can go right away, and then it naturally goes to the, you know, the next people who have to move to get closer and fight. So, I mean, to me, it made a lot of sense just naturally. I mean, you would expect your archers and your people who can fire from far away to, you know, in a standard combat situation, fire first, uh, you know, unless they're trying to be stealthy in some way. Yeah, I was a fan of it i just i don't like the name i just think the fast slow terminology should be should be reworked uh one of the things that rob mentioned in our um interview with him that i really thought was interesting is um the, basically the way the game is designed or the way set forth is that you play through a campaign in 11 sessions so you start off at zero level your first night you play three four or five hours whatever a normal session is and then you level up and the next time you're at first level, and then you level up. So there's no XP. There's no tracking whatsoever. You just play a session, and then you level up, and you do that until you get to 10th level, and then you start over. You create a new character, and you move on, and you can either stay in that same world, and your characters are now NPCs, or they may all die, or you just play a completely different setting. And again, I think that is an idea that as I've gotten older, makes so much more sense to me. You know, when I was, uh, I've said many times on the podcast before that when I was in college and high school and I could play every day, 12 hours a day and just, you know, have these crazy sessions, I wanted to have these really slow building campaigns. But now that I fight for every moment, I kind of enjoy the fact that there's like a beginning, middle and end to the story. You know where it's going. And that's just something that you build into the sessions, which 13th Age does that a little bit is that you level every four sessions. This is just a little bit quicker than that. So I really like that. It, it definitely makes the game move a little faster. It, it builds in a little bit of a sense of urgency. You have an end in sight. I mean, back in the old days of Dungeons & Dragons, you just played forever, and you hoped you could play forever. Uh, when we got to 4th edition, and they gave us a very set level cap and they included that concept of the final epic quest to end your character's story. A lot of people got upset with that, 
But a lot of people said, you know what, that's cool. I have an end goal. I have somewhere to build towards and look forward to. And having not necessarily an end goal, but having an idea that I'm going to play the this part of a character's life and I'm going to talk about his journey to this point. It may continue past that. We might just play a, a, a higher level game for a while, but I have that ability to get to an awesome point, do something cool, and then start over is just a nice way to keep the game fresh and interesting. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to understand what you mean, Michael, when you say that this feels like a collection of house rules. Because, that you know, I have the exact same life experience that, that at one point in my life, keeping track of every one of those little chunks of XP was delightful. And, and now I just, you know, fuck it, have a level up. Pretty much. I loved it when I first was playing Dungeons and Dragons. I loved adding up my XP every session. The the second we were done, and the GM said, "All right, guys, we're done for the night. How much XP do we get? How much XP do we get? Where's my treasure? Where's my gold? Is it a? Can I add a hundred? Can I add five? Oh, I need three more XP to get to this point. Oh, I shouldn't have cast the numbers, that once. They go up. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was awesome. It was cool, and. Now, when I look at a, a a player's handbook and it says you need 50 XP to get to this level and you need 15,000 XP to get to this level, I'm like, that's just that's so much work. Can't can't I just do something cool? I want to do something fun right now. Well, if if you want to do something fun right now, it sounds like this is a great system for it. Oh, absolutely. Um, something Rob was saying is that he he. Not arbitrarily, but he kind of broke down that level 0 to 10 progression into facsimiles or, or generalizations of different games. Like the, the very early levels are old school AD&D. Uh, the mid-levels, you're getting into that 3-5, 4th edition epic stuff, getting bigger and bigger. And as you are power gaming out, uh, at your ninth and 10th levels, you're getting in those really cool epic handbooks, mythic handbooks, the superhero, we, we define how the world works kind of games. So that was his uh, vision in limiting the game at this point to these 10 levels. He still wanted to include the concepts behind uh, those different types of games, and I think he did it really well. I mean, we haven't seen what you can do above level 1, but from what he was talking about and some of the spells and abilities that you can choose from, it's up there. And it's bonkers, bananas, off-the-wall crazy. I mean, that idea sounds really cool. Uh, it seems like a different... It almost seems like a different idea than like Dungeons & Dragons, at least you know how I kind of understand it. It seems almost like you're... You know, we're going to run this adventure... Uh, you know, like uh, one of the adventures that Wizard releases or whatever that's for, you know, like level one to eight. But for this game, it's like you're going to roll this, you're going to roll a new tune, and when you're done with this adventure, that's the end of that. You know, you will have gone from new character to end of your development, uh, which is interesting. But, I mean, it seems like that's, I mean, that's like a like a video game kind of dynamic. It's, you know, you start start at level 1, you get to level 10, and you know, you've know you completed your task. If you want to play again, you can make a new character, uh, which is definitely fun, but you know, I've never had the, the dynamic, the, you know, the, 
the history that you guys have. So I, you know, I've never had a character that I've, you know, taken out for a year or whatever and, and seen how that developed. Uh, and I find that also, you know, very interesting. Uh, so, you know, again, I guess depending on what you want out of that, uh, out of your system, that could be a really good thing. You know, I, I, um, you mentioned that you haven't had that experience and, and I don't think uh, we have either. I mean, We've talked about it a little bit on recordings before, and I've heard you guys talk about it on other podcasts. That that how many games, how many role-playing, uh, you know, uh, campaigns have you finished because somebody moved or had a kid or got a new job? Versus how many have you actually finished where there was a complete final story with some sort of conclusion? That never happens. They're like anime series. You're on to episode 456, and nothing has changed, right? You, you're still murder hobos, staying in the same crummy inns, you know, attacking the same sort of, you know, creepy villagers who who get infested with some sort of new plague, right? But but the the idea of enforcing some sort of season, you know, or 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 a completion onto people that 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 the, the designers taken up the opinion that that. I don't think most modern human beings with jobs and responsibilities can hold together a game for more than 10 weeks. And so we'll just make a 10-week span, you have a complete adventure, and then maybe you start again. I think it's brave, and I, I think it's it's really insightful. Yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to be in a couple of campaigns that went on for a while, but... But again, they didn't end, you know, with the ring getting tossed into Mordor. Uh, they ended because uh, someone got a girlfriend and they didn't show up for three weeks in a row. And their the campaign was built around their character. So I was like, well, that sucks. So we start over or a new edition came out or someone got a new handbook and they wanted to try this class. So they just committed suicide with their other character. 100% agree. The, the idea of that epic campaign that lasts for 20 years and you play the same characters and and eventually you play the characters kids and there's a legacy i still want that i just don't think it's ever going to happen in my lifetime so i really like the idea of a game like this and rob even says that this is like a pick up and play you know you could be have a bunch of people over somebody wants to to role play you could just throw this together pretty quickly because we had pre-gens but you could have done what we did for pre-gens in 15 minutes. And once you know the system and you, you played it a couple of times, you could do it as little as five. You know, you could just roll all the random stuff and just put it, you know, plot it on a chart, five minutes, everybody's got their numbers and you can kind of figure out how you're going to play them as you go. And, you know, at this point, there's other games that do that. I don't, this isn't the first one, but I like how this one does that. And I put it in the same category as some of those others that you could do this sort of a last spur of the moment thing. Most role-playing games, you could not do that. Unless people, you know, like have already played before and very experienced, even with fifth edition, if we had three hours and someone's like, hey, you want to role play? And I've not done any prep and they don't have any characters. I'm going to say no. This game, I might be willing to say, all right, let's just see what happens. Let's just roll characters real fast, see what you get. Maybe that'll spur my inspiration and, uh, and I'll know where to go. And I, I think one of the things that allows that to happen is how bare bones these character sheets are and how little information we have to define a PC. I'm kind of on the fence about this because I really like it. I like how simple it is and I like how Rob has still used these really simple concepts to make a very deep and usable character. At no point during our playtest did I feel 
well, I want to do something, but I don't know how to do it, or I don't know if I can do it. And I think that mostly speaks to Nat running the game, because he really brought us into that game world very smoothly and kept us invested. But I don't know how I, I feel about the lack of stats, uh, the lack of skills. Um, it, it's really foreign to me seeing a character sheet with basically four numbers that define my character. The actual character sheets themselves, because we had to print out like Word document versions, but the actual ones that I got at Winter Fantasy are are staggeringly slim. Like it really was like off putting because again, pretty much in the center of the page, you have sort of an offset pinnacle and you know, your, your stats, which most of them are created based off of your legacy, which is your race. You are a Jotun or a goblin or a human or a, an angel or a cambion that fills in most of it at zero level. And then you have a couple derivative stats. So like your perception is basically your intelligence. Your power is basically this. Uh, your health is basically your constitution. So you've only got like four numbers and then you have like three other numbers that are based off of that. So on your character sheet, that all fits in like a three inch radius circle and the whole rest of the sheets basically blank. And he said, just put whatever you want everywhere. You know, if you want to write your equipment, just pick a pick a square or pick a corner and write your equipment if you want to write the name of some npcs just put it somewhere i and it was liberating to be able to like okay this is my character sheet i'm just gonna put whatever i freaking want wherever i want to and as long as you keep that center area clear you're good and i don't know it it's it's different i like it but it is off-putting uh the one thing that i thought was um i mean dealing with like the the attributes and skills and stuff that you would have, it does simplify it a lot for new people. Like the idea of just having professions, you know, like your your profession, if you wouldn't have gone into adventuring, you would be into, you know, uh, history or soldier, whatever. That alleviates having to have a bunch of, you know, specific history-related or uh, soldier-related skills in your skill set. You're just, you know... If you can explain some way that, you know, your knowledge of history would affect this, uh, you know, this thing that you're trying to ask or this, uh, you know, task that you're trying to do, fine. Then, you know, you're, you know, you're adequate at that. So, I, I mean, I, I kind of like the way that, you know, we can get rid of a lot of skills by just having this real general profession. So, you know. Then you don't have to keep track of all these additional numbers that you'll you know you'll probably use once a game maybe if you know the right very specific things happen. Uh, but if you just have a general knowledge of this type of thing, you know maybe you can shoehorn in. Okay, well you know my knowledge of history lets me deduce that you know this used to happen long ago, whatever, whatever. So. I kind of, I do like the way that professions kind of replace a lot of additional skills, but and you know on the other hand, you know we're all people who got into role playing games. We like stats, we like numbers, we like you know we like to make our person you know the picture of whatever we imagine them to be. So you know I could see it being slightly off putting, but as far as you know being accessible to new people. I think it hit that right on the head. You know, you're you're 
absolutely right, name buddy, and and I'll 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 fill you one up that that not only does it keep you from having to keep track of a bunch of skills, but I've I've had you know it keeps you from having to buy a bunch of skills if you can't afford it. I had a GURPS character once who needed a, a black ops soldier background, and there were 45 applicable skills in the list of 90 skills that GURPS has, and and I just couldn't afford to be good enough at them that at the table I constantly sucked and failed and and underperformed what I should have. And the the converse that that I've never yet seen a uh, a skill system, no matter how diverse, to adequately capture all the subtleties and nuance of my fishmonger background. I mean, it's it's just lost to these <laughs> systems that that just you know they they don't have the 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 real complexity or insight into the fishmongering life. And so if 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 I just want to put fishwife on my background, then that's that's 100% eclipsed, right? That's that's every fishwifery related skill, transaction, economic investment, it's, it's all there. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Like kind of what you said earlier about um, initiative, that this is very similar to like 13th age, because I love 13th age backgrounds, but it's like, I'll do you one better. I'll take your 13th age backgrounds and go, fuck it. You got, you got professions, the end, move on. And again, it's so simple. And, I, you know, both Scots have said that I've experienced that where I've had rogue characters in 3.5 where I want to be the skill monkey and I want to put all these skills. So I have to make sure I have a high intelligence so I get extra points. And that means I have to, you know, take a dump stat somewhere else. And you try to make that character equitable with someone else so that you don't feel like underpowered when it comes to combat. This is just everything you need and you know if we were to go into our real lives and what we do for a living and try to create ourselves with skills you're not going to have enough points you know i have 15 years experience in my job that involves a lot of diverse things from management to communication to training facilitation and then my what my the actual technical skills that i have there's no way that i would be able to be able to create a character that had that skill tree without cheating and giving myself extra skill points. So this is just so much easier. I am an ex, I'm a fishmonger, I'm a um, cobbler, I'm a farrier, I'm a trapper, I'm a hunter, I'm a cop, whatever. And then just, that's what you are, that's what you did before you became an adventurer. And if, as um, Scott the second said, if it comes up in play and if it makes sense and you can justify it, then you'll probably get a, a boon on that role because yeah, you did used to be a soldier. So when you're interacting with this general of the other army, you wouldn't know how to properly salute or whatever. So yeah, get your get your extra D six. That's right. As you know, as, as as a DM for Michael, if with his 15 years of, of background of professional experience, if there comes up an ass kissing situation, we don't have to look up the ass kissing rules. We don't have to check out if there is an ass kissing skill. I know that he is a professional ass kisser, and if there is an ass if, if lips need to be puckered, there no role required, my friend. You have the skill. That is right. And and one of the things Rob brought up in our uh, discussion with him is a, a lot of different systems boil down to chasing after a certain thing. Like in fifth edition, you're chasing after advantage to offset disadvantage. In 3.5 in Pathfinder, you're chasing after those stackable bonuses to get a massive number. In Shadow of the Demon Lord, you're chasing after boons. And it's very clear that the way you get those is by role-playing. And I think by virtue of having these very generic, very broad backgrounds, fishwife, 
soldier, thief, cobbler, that gives you the freedom to say, well, hey, I can argue that I used to do this, this, and this. I can argue that I read that book and, and claim that boon bonus. I mean, specifically if we're looking at 13th Age, uh, since that's pretty close to it, I loved the concept of, okay, I just pick a generic category and I assign it a plus two or a plus three. And that means I have more experience in this than in that. In our experience playing 13th Age, there were lots of times where I felt kind of jilted because I didn't get to use that benefit or that bonus the way I thought I should. But in Shadow of the Demon Lord, I'm pretty sure that as long as I can say, well, I should know this. I'm a cobbler. I should know how to hammer nails. If there's a game situation where hammering nails applies, the GM's going to say, yeah, you know how to hammer nails. Go for it. It's easier. What I like about it, too, and this is something we clarified with with Rob that may not have come out completely or clearly in our uh, playthrough with uh, Nat, is the way that boons and banes stack with each other. If you end up with three boons on a roll, you roll three D6, but you don't add them up. You just take the best one. So no matter how many boons you end up with, the most you're going to get is a plus six. So there's nothing that de-incentivizes the DM from giving them to you. If, if you're doing a great job role-playing or if you do have a very good tactical mind and you're able to maniv- maneuver the battlefield or manipulate the battlefield so that you get a great advantage, give them two or three boons. The most they're going to get is a six, where if you gave them three boons and they were cumulative, now the boons are actually probably going to be more important than anything else, your initial stat or the D20, which is one of the things that I did not like about 3.5 or high-level 4th edition. You'd roll a D20 and you had a 37 to it. That takes away, like, why even roll the D20 at that point? It, it, it becomes obsolete. And I, I like how they avoided that in this system. You give out boons like candy if people are doing great stuff, I mean, you're making the table fun. Here's D6 for you. You get a D6 and you get a D6. But at the end of the day, it's not going to affect it that much. Uh, it's interesting you bring that up, though, because one of the things that I thought was kind of, or you know, when I was talking about earlier with the, you know, all the checks being ten, and then you kind of, you know, you balance the difficulty with veins and boons. From a DM perspective, like if I want to fudge the numbers on that, and like I really want you to pass this, but despite what you know, everyone knows that the, you know, the checks ten, and you know, we can see your, you know, you bane, you got to minus six on, yeah, you failed, but I really wanted you to pass, and if this was D&D, I would have just, you know, you don't know what the check was anyway, so I could just say you pass, or, you know, if I was being a, you know, if I was, if I wanted to be a dick, you know, the opposite of that, but now I'm kind of locked in, because you know you've just got to pass 10, and, you know, you know, where's my, you know, where's my DM screen I can hide behind here? I, I would I would say that that I, I don't know if I'm not to the point where where I'm I'm almost blaming uh, myself for that as as a DM of my home table that uh, there was a, there was last week I had a player and I and I wanted her to go to the temple and meet an important character and I said make a prayer roll I don't care what it is with advantage because now you're definitely going to pass right two d twenty she got a one and a two I mean that was a train wreck and I set myself up right I let them roll and letting them roll is just setting them up for for disappointing me right so so maybe that's the subtlety and and so so is is that the subtlety of this system the reason that everything is is DC 10 basically a 50/50 shot plus or minus boons is is the purpose of that 
so that you don't tempt DMs to make people roll when they shouldn't, when something is either impossible or so easy that you shouldn't roll? I think so. That's that's probably one of the number one skills as a new DM. We get questions all the time through Twitter, Facebook, and, and other ways that the, it boils down to you're asking your players to roll too much. You're asking them to roll for things that they shouldn't. And I do think this is a way that, one, you're going to be less likely to ask for roles that you shouldn't because you assume they're going to pass. And if you do ask for a role, you don't have to spend a lot of mental brain power trying to figure out how, how you're going to spin it because they already know if they passed or failed. They're going to tell you really quickly, yes, yes, I passed or no, I didn't. I think that frees up a little bit of brain power for other things because they are going to tell you not, I got a 15. Well, what was the DC? Well, what, you know, what was this? What was that? They're going to say I passed or I failed. That's They're going to give you the answer. You don't have to even do the math. And one of the things that both Nat and Rob said word for word, so obviously it's a very important part of this game and rule structure, is that when you're looking at the outcome of an event, it either happens, it doesn't happen, or it might happen. And all we care about when we're rolling dice is if it might happen. If it might happen, just make it a 50-50 shot. Keep it simple and and draw the entertainment from that. And I think that's the mindset that these guys are coming from with this game. I think that's why a lot of times you just claim success straight from your profession or your role-playing. I mean, I think even Nat told it to us when we were first starting. You know, guys, if you role-play it out, if you have it in your profession, if you can argue it, I'm just going to say you can do it. I, I don't care. It, it That kind of stuff doesn't matter. We roll the dice when either it matters or it's entertaining whether we pass or fail. And this is also a great way to bring up the whole fail forward thing that we have touched on in the past. Sure, I might fail to hit that 10, but uh, we can derive the entertainment from, okay, you still did it, but now this happens too. You know, there's a lot of flexibility in that whole pass-fail achievement. And, and doing this puts, uh, puts, lets the GM focus on that. I mean, as you said, Michael, I don't have to spend the brain power to think about, oh, I, did he, he, he needed to get a 14, uh, but he maybe didn't get it, but he kind of did really well, so maybe I'll give him a plus two, or, all right, well, he was balancing, and there was wind, and what did that wizard cast, and maybe this should be a 16, or, or maybe I should have given him disadvantage. I just know, pass or fail. And then I'm saying to myself, well, do I care if he fails? Ultimately, what does it matter? Where's the entertainment? And okay, he failed, but he, he played it out really well, and I want to do something cool here. So you failed, but you failed so spectacularly well, this happens. <laughs> or you failed, so now here's an opportunity for me to introduce three more zombies, or that kind of thing. I mean, there's no critical hit, there's no critical miss mechanic in this game, so the whole pass-fail thing can also be a, wow, you succeeded. You did an awesome success there. Well, you failed. Okay, now you broke your weapon. I mean, it could be as simple as that. There's so many ways to interpret this whole get a 10 result. And two things I wanted to throw in there, um, the mechanic about insanity and corruption are also two parts that I really, really enjoy about the game. And it definitely, it, it also reinforces that theme that we talked about earlier. 
And it's also an easy mechanic that you could just not include. Like if you want to go for a more fantastical D&D Lord of the Rings element, you could just not use those two. Or if you really want to reinforce like a Call of Cthulhu game, you could make those very prominent in the game and, and maybe how they're used or how often they come into play. Uh, but again, going back to Nat's skill, uh, early on in the game, you cast a spell that you failed the roll for. But you still succeeded. The spell still did what it was supposed to do. You still got the answer you were looking for. The failure consequence was you got a point of insanity, which was super cool. So it wasn't a that, you know, failing equals nothing. Failing equals better, more, more story, more interesting. And again, that's Nat's skill. And that's also the system and how it's designed. So I think A plus for both of those. All right. So I, again, I think it's pretty obvious we're all big fans of the system, all big fans of, of Nat uh, and his talent at, at running the game. Um, and I think, you know, what, the, what Rob has put together. Uh, I know we kind of went around once for things that we didn't like. I don't know if Classic Scott ever really got to you. You you asked the question, but I don't know that you had a chance to answer it. So was there anything about the game that you didn't like? That's the reason I asked the question, because I was had a hard time answering it myself. If if I had to pick something, it was, it was merely um, topical. As a player, I really don't like puzzles. So... If 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 you're ever playing a game with me, you'll know why. Because as a DM, I come up with horrible, obnoxious puzzles that obviously no one can solve and, and torture them with them. So so when the tables are reversed, it just makes grumpy times. But no, I mean, I I thought the system was brilliant. Uh, like like you say, pick up and go. Um, yeah. I had one other thing. So like on the, I was kind of on the fence on the checks all being ten, and and Caleb had some really good points, and I. I kind of agree with him now. Like, I agree, you know, if you're going to have the professions, which are these general overarching things that take away skills, then just make those passes. Like, we don't need to roll on those anymore. Like, let's not get bogged down with that. But the one thing that I did, like, so, you know, I'm I'm okay with the the checks thing, but uh, the one thing I actually did kind of think was odd or or just didn't really fit in with, uh, with this type of system was, like, on the at least from the sorcerer or from like the caster standpoint, like a lot of the, a lot of the powers and stuff, they're all, they were all the ranges and things on them. They were all, they all had like very specific like yard measurements, you know, like this, this spell is only effective from, you know, this many yards plus your power or whatever, which, which didn't really seem to mesh with how, we were tactically playing the game. Like we never said, like I'm going to move forward 20 yards or something. You know, we didn't. We didn't have a. This wasn't a a tactile square game or whatever. You know, this is theater of the mind. So like I, you know, if my power is only five yards, it's it seems weird that you'd put that kind of verbiage in your in your power definition. But then like everywhere else in the game, it's all seems very relaxed. I, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a negative, but it's definitely it didn't seem to really mesh with the the rest of it. It's an excellent point. I, I would have thought they'd have gone for more of a Marvel system where they have some abstract concept of areas, where a bar might have two areas, and uh, you know a football stadium might have two areas because they're the only meaningful demarcation of our side versus their side. And then your spell has a range of two areas, so it's effective next door. Yeah, I mean, like it would have, you know, the, like I've got an, an area of attack that fills like a three-yard cone. Like, well, three yards doesn't really mean anything to me. I mean, 
uh, that's a very specific uh, a number, and you know we're not playing with specifics in this you know kind of setup, so it it seems odd. So I'll I'll take that one. Um, when I played this at Winter Fantasy, we did use maps and minis, and having having spoken to Rob, he mentioned he said specifically, I love maps and minis. I love tokens. I love that. So I get the feeling that in a home game, not over the internet, the assumption is that you will use the the grid and the maps and the minis so that you would probably need that to be more tactical. But the way that, like, if I run this even at home, I'm still not going to. I'm going to do the narrative combat. So I think I probably will play a little bit more fast and loose with it. But I think his idea is that you would have this cooperative storytelling game but when it comes to that part of the combat that you would switch over which is still weird i agree with you it, it does seem like those are two separate ideas that are that don't quite go together yeah it seems like those two camps of people are kind of separate you know there's the tactical let's have maps and minis and then there's the michael let's let's just tell a story man let's just have a good time yeah and if I get you sidetracked like five times, then you know. <laughs> what squirrel? Yeah, that um, uh, th- those two different camps do tend to clash a little bit, and and I agree with you, Scott. That that does seem a little bit weird, but it's also one of the things that, well, first off, it might change. I mean, I I know they're pretty much done with everything, but maybe they're going to do some more fine tuning. Maybe they're going to you know. Have, maybe there'll be a, a little chunk in the book that says, hey guys, uh, we, we put these all in terms of yards because we expect you to use maps and minis. If you don't, here's how you fudge it. Or, or there, you know, there's a little uh, addendum in the back or an appendix about using one versus the other. Um, it's also something that I think as you get to be a little bit more of an experienced GM and you're more comfortable with adjusting the game, you can say, you know what? Here's how this works. I mean, maybe yeah, that's just my um, perception. I, I know it's how where I'm coming from versus where you're coming from, but I don't see that as a downside, but seeing the numbers on the page when the rest of the system is so, eh, do whatever you want is a little bit weird. I, I never really expected to hear uh, Rear Admiral crunch a lot claim that, that the best way to improve a system was to arbitrarily change the number values into non-numbers. i just like to keep you guessing, buddy. I want to keep it exciting. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I mean, you're, you're right. I, <laughs> this system feels so different than a regular game. And when we were talking to Rob, I said it, you know, I feel like I'm coming from Michael's side of the fence with a lot of my statements and comments. So... Maybe maybe this game is the game that wins me over and I lose my crunch title. I don't know. And what was really weird is that I was asking a lot of crunch questions. Like, it really was like a Freaky Friday situation. Like, I kept going to the mechanics and how this worked and how that worked and Caleb was all about the story. And it was like, what's going on? You guys have been spending too much time together. We have. We got to separate you. We've met <laughs> once. Come on. <laughs> twice. Uh, twice, you're right. I, I assume you mean you've only biblically bet twice. Oh, that's like 17. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we're all unabashed fans. We could we could gush all night, uh, but we have other things to do. So I want to wrap this up a little bit. So I'll start with New Scott. Uh, sort of 
last thoughts, last comments, last word, anything that we haven't touched on uh, that you'd like to talk about before we before we wrap up? I don't know. I, I'm sure you guys covered it when you when you spoke directly to him, but uh, we didn't talk about it tonight. But the the one thing that I really did like, um, and I, I'm sure this is probably in other systems too, but uh, I've not seen it before, is the idea of paths. When you level up your character, you know I you know you can start as a you know a magician, a, a caster. You know I level up. I realize I'm too squishy. I'm gonna you know at level three I'm gonna focus more on being a warrior or whatever. Like you can mix and match those different kind of classes and really kind of customize the way you want your character to end up at the end. Uh, it seems like an interesting idea. Like I, I know D and D has some like multi class stuff, but this seems like really built into just the way you level up your character is you know pick what you want we'll put them together uh, what we get out will be you know your character I, I really like that idea so I had a hand up to him on that very cool I agree with you actually I think multi-classing is added on rules to solve a problem where this feels like it's just organic that's just the way it makes sense so you start off you know you're a rough and tumble fighter but you've in the story you find a, a a lost arcane tomb or tomb and in which you find a tome and you read it and then you like decide oh i want to do this and then it corrupts your soul and you're like oh shit i'm gonna go to hell i gotta repent so then you become a cleric it's all very organic to the story rather than well if i take this class and this class i can do seven more points of damage uh, on average every three rounds and not that everyone multi-classes for that reason but that's a lot of it but I'm sure that this would also lend itself to those min-maxers. Like, I'm sure, you know, if I level up, you know, a warrior first and then a, you know, barbarian and then I mix in a little mage, you know, eventually, you know, I'm sure with this rule set, you'll still have the min-maxers who can, well, if you do all of these classes just right, you will get, you know, that extra, you know, four points of damage at the, at the end. So, you know, I'm sure they'll be happy with that as well. Yeah, there's certainly not a penalty for changing your character path in Shadow of the Demon Lord, which is cool because typically in any core version of Dungeons and Dragons, multi-classing, you lose something. You gain the ability to do something else, but it's it's a half-assed version. You're losing some of those numbers, uh, especially in Fifth Edition. There's a huge penalty for multi-classing, um, and I think Rob said there there's some astronomical number of combinations uh, that you could come up with uh, with the different paths they had. It was like 200,000 or something like that. I know we just talked to him the other day and I totally forget what it was, but I think that was more for like, if you, between your legacy, your skills or professions and everything, like if you add in the class paths with the different legacies, with the different professions, there's like a quarter million different options that you could come up with to start your character at level zero. I, I thought he was talking about the actual class paths, not just the fluff. I don't think so, but I don't know. I, I don't remember either. I remember there was a big number. Either way, uh, big number, lots of options. It's organic. Great it's organic, point. <laughs> which is one of my favorite words. All right, so Scott Classic, final thoughts or words? You know, if, if you want to spend 10 minutes to roll up a, a, a cobalt barber, and have them lose their mind to the horrors of the beyond, this is your game. Well said, sir. Well said. All right. The Caleb G. 
last words? I am absolutely going to back and purchase Shadow of the Demon Lord on Kickstarter. An outstanding, very entertaining setting. A very fluid, dynamic, organic way to create a character and play the game. Uh, Very simple, very streamlined, but still really deep with lots of great mechanical options and role-playing motivation. Uh, It's a solid game for a long campaign, and it's a great game for a pickup, throwdown RPG night over dinner or at a convention. If this doesn't get funded, I'm going to drive to your house and punch you in the face. Why my house? That you was unspecific. It was it was oh, okay. an unspecific modifier. Okay, that was the audience. Yes. The audience. <laughs> Someone. The unspecific you. Whoever does not back this and makes it happen. So I, I completely agree. I I really, really like this system. I definitely will be backing it at some level on the Kickstarter, which by the time this goes live is already available. So I really hope you guys will check it out. I will put links into the show notes so that you guys can go there. And uh, my first thought is that I want to hack this to make it a Western game and basically play Deadlands. So you could only be human. We're going to put you in the old West. And it's just like Deadlands. Bad things start happening. You slowly work in, work in the, con- the corruption and insanity. Uh, this could be so freaking awesome. So I want to play. for that alone, I'm ready to, to get it. This is a really That's hackable system. And we haven't even, we don't even know the system, but it's really hackable. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, Scott, you were getting talked over there. What were you saying? I said, yeah, I'm down to play uh, Deadlands in this uh, this system. It sounds awesome. Very cool. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, we are still looking to do more of the trials. So, anyone that's listening, if you uh, have a game system that you are about to kickstart or you're working on, or if you're just a DM of a game that we haven't played, because there's still a bunch of them out there, haven't played New World of Darkness, haven't played Marvel Heroic. Uh, I think uh, Firefly RPG is something I want to play. Um, feng Shui or Feng Shui or however the Feng you say that. Uh, there's a bunch out there. So if you're willing to run the game for us or you know somebody that <laughs> that could help us out, let us know. Uh, we would love to try out your game. So for Michael, Scott, Scott, and Caleb, thank you very much, and we will see you next time. And go Fung yourself. Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or DriveThruRPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. 
you can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.